0: So, uh, I'd just like to tell you about a little incident at the Shrine Auditorium. Um, well, see, we made this scene down there. We walked in, and this, this place is big, you know, real big, you know. And everybody's going to be at Louis Armstrong, and his boys were going to be there, and the Titans, and the Velvet, and the, the Blackouts. So, let me, let me tell you about this scene
1: group, the Olives,
2: The Velvetones think they're Lawrence Wells.
3: folks, this is Scott Parker. Welcome to episode 3 of the Zappa Cast from May of 2011. On this episode, we're taking off with Mr. Peabody into the Wayback Machine, which in its usual reliable way will transport us all the way back to 1959 as we take a look at the early years of a promising upstart composer from Southern California by the name of Frank Zappa. In this episode, Andrew and I are going to give you the lowdown on Frank's wild years. We'll also be talking with Zappa historian extraordinaire Greg Russo about project that he's uh, just released via his website at CrossfirePublications.com. Project's called Paul Buff Presents the PAL and Original Sound Studio Archives. And it's kind of a massive overview. of pretty much everything that exists, the work of uh, Paul Buff, genius recording pioneer, and uh, very, very notable influence on uh, the young Mr. Zappa. Also in this episode, we are greatly pleased to welcome a new voice to the ZappaCast team, Mr. Mick Eakers, who will talk about Frank's earliest guitars in a new segment entitled Zappa's Gear. At the top of the show, you heard members of Frank's first band, The Blackouts, talking about a gig they played with Louis Armstrong, of all people, at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles in 1958. The voices you're hearing are those of Wayne Lyles, Terry Wimberley, Elwood Jr. Medeo, and right at the very end of the recording, Mr. Frank Zappa. That track, under the title The Blackouts, was released on the Lost Episodes album in 1996. That segued into the main theme from Lumpy Gravy, or Duodenum, as it was later titled on the 1995 CD issue. That piece was apparently recorded at Studio Z in Cucamonga in 1964. Time now to begin our journey. It's time to turn the mic over to that cosmic tour guide to the stars, the very Reverend Andrew Greenaway, who carries around with him the earliest evidence of Mr. Zappa's composing talents. The floor is yours, Reverend.
4: All right, bus wankers, this is Mr. IBS speaking at you from the Leahy Coconut Studios in England. In 1992, keyboard and guitar player magazines published a tribute to Frank that included the music for a short 12-tone piece he had written the day after his 18th birthday. Called Waltz for Guitar, Frank apparently never heard the ditty performed until he typed it into his sing clavier many years later. He described it as short and boring. A few years after the sheet music appeared and after Frank had passed away, American classical guitarist David Tannenbaum and German group Bonnen both had a stab at recording it. You're about to hear their renditions. Dot, 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 dot.
0: Motherfucker, possibility. Ooh, baby, baby, I'm
1: gonna be afraid of gonna touch me. Well, I'm
2: in this bubble. Oh, I can't even see you, baby.
1: Won't you come help? I some day no and that gets a plunger right after me, I'll let you know a little secret baby, I'm getting tired of all this pee.
5: Ooh, my head's Beat it, All right, so we're here talking with Dr. Greg Russo, gentleman and scholar and uh, author of uh, several very famous Frank Zappa books and lots of books about lots of other interesting people. And uh, he's also put out a collection called uh, Paul Buff Presents the Palin Original Sound Studio Archives, the collection, a little bit of a uh, monster um, trip down memory lane for you zappa out there. Welcome to the show, Greg. Oh, thank you very much. Hey, and we're here also with the very reverend Andrew Greenaway. Hello there. <laughs> and Andrew's going to take uh, some of these questions on because, uh, as as we've established earlier, I'm a horrible interviewer. <laughs> how are you doing with it anyway?
6: It's, uh, it's, it's going a little bit, you know, on the slow side because,
5: I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of money, a lot yeah. of material also, a lot of work, you know, sure. uh, went, in, went into it certainly.
6: And certainly my... Education background, especially in math. Once you see the, the level of detail that's involved with that, you can see, you know, how you have to organize things in order to present such a a, a massive body of work. It's it's, it's quite a it's quite a lot of stuff that I had to sort of manage for a long period of time. And um, you know, it's just it's just something where you know I expect I expect it to sell you know uh, well over a long period of time. It's just that it's um, you know, it's just such a, it's such an enormous, um, uh, you know, uh, a bit of work that I put in for about five years. You know, to, to assemble everything and and to, you know, make it sound as good as possible, with as much information, and you know, information as possible. That um, you know, it's just that uh, a lot of people that that see it, they can't believe. You know how much how much is there? I mean, you could you could be spending you know literally weeks or or months going through everything, and you're always finding something that you didn't catch before. Okay, Greg, just just um, talking about the Paul Buff
7: collection. There, um, really, when did you first get in touch with Paul, and how did this all come about?
6: Well, I, I first wrote um Paul Buff about uh ten years ago about different things that he had uh, worked on. And, um, I found out at the time that, uh, Paul had my book and he was, uh, very impressed by it. And I just kept writing him once in a while, uh, about, about different things that he, that he, uh, that he did in the past. And, um, about five years ago, I, um, said to myself, well, you know, a lot of people haven't heard the, the very early, um, material that, uh, that Frank Zappa did, you know, certainly people have heard things on, like uh, break time on, you know, bull Legs and stuff like that, but I found it kind of odd that um, nobody had actually reissued any of the material on Paul Buff's uh, record labels from the, uh, the early 60s. So I had asked um, Paul if he would be interested in um, making them available, again, and um, he was uh, agreeable to that, and then within a few months, he sent me all of his uh, tapes, and you can just imagine, um, anyone could imagine being sent a whole bunch of uh, reel-to-reel tapes, and you just imagine in your mind what could, could possibly be on them, and I was just, you know, enjoying myself for months transferring all of these things. And I didn't even have a reel-to-reel machine at all. I had to actually buy one because uh, I had never heard music on a reel-to-reel, funny enough. And it, as it turns out, it's uh, probably the best way to hear music because it sounds the most natural. And I, when I was transferring all these tapes, I came across a reel. And it had all these um, instrumentals on it. And I noticed on the reel itself, uh, it had... Frank's handwriting on it, and then inside the box was a little note from him with the names of the songs on it. So I said to myself, wow, this is, this is incredible. I, this is like a, a gold mine here. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the songs was called uh, Cookin' Turnips, which everybody knows as Speed Freak Boogie, but that's not, Speed Freak Boogie is not the correct title. Cookin' Turnips was the correct title. But of course Frank didn't remember that all those, you know, years later. Thing to to make um, you know available for people to hear because none of these things were ever documented at all. No one even knew about them at the time. Uh, you know, CDs were still selling decently, and uh, I originally wanted to put them out on CD. But you know, since the, the market changed and the economy has changed and everything else, uh, you know, since that point, I didn't think that you know CDs were probably the best outlet for for that uh, that type of body of work because there's just quite a bit of stuff there and um I wanted to make sure that everybody was you know was as uh, had the ability to buy it and everything else. But the but the thing is that it was the format which was the problem. So so I kinda started out like, well, you know, I can certainly make them available as downloads and stuff, but that's not studio quality. I'd like to have the um the, the tracks available, just as you would hear them perhaps on a CD. So then I kind of just hit on the idea of saying, okay, well, let me just put them on a on a flash drive. And then I came up with a, a whole bunch of um, liner notes, which turned out to be a lot of pages, close to about 140 pages of, of notes regarding the recording of all of these, um, these songs and, you know, backgrounds French about French. everybody uh, that recorded them and stuff like that. And I put all these things together and um, I combined uh, Paul Buff's tapes with other things that he did, both on his own at Original Sound um, Studios as well as uh, other groups that he worked with at Original Sound. I mean, certainly there were few hits that Paul was involved with, and Paul was actually shocked that I knew that he actually engineered stuff like Incense and Peppermints by Strawberry Alarm Clock, (laughs) which was number one in the U.S. Stuff like that, Green Eyed Lady by Sugarloaf, which was also a very big hit in the U.S. And he was just amazed that I knew about all these things, but I had been following all these, all these, these, these groups all these years, so I knew. That Paul was involved with all this, so he was kind of he was kind of taken aback, I guess, by the the, the amount of knowledge that I had about what he worked on. So it wasn't just I'm not a, you know I'm just a Zappa fanatic. No, it was just that I happen to know a lot about a lot of different types. I mean, that's kind of you know the way everything went. So it started out as something I thought kind of small, and then it grew into something quite large as time went on. So you
7: talk about these notes, Greg? Were they? Um Largely by written by Paul, or um, quite a bit by Frank as well. The notes about the recordings.
6: Oh well, well, the the um, the early stuff was um, written by by Frank, and and um, there weren't really any interactions like that. I mean, there were a couple things where uh, you had some sort of novelty things, you know, like certainly the the Ned and Nelda single, where those were collaborations with. Uh, Zappa with uh, Ray Collins, that kind of stuff. So there was a you know a handful of those uh, collaborations, but mostly it was you know Frank coming up with some some sort of a gimmick to try to uh, capitalize on some sort of a uh, a record that was already out. You know they they used to be called answer records where where something would come out and then someone would come out with something answering whatever the Whatever the you know the single was about so um, what you, what that think? was kind of the thing you know everything they were doing was sort of a reaction to whatever was actually out there so um, that was sort of their approach the early approach certainly at at, uh, at pal studios was to come up with something that was sort of a parody of what had just come out and they would just try to sell whatever uh, recordings they could to whatever Know, labels that could get uh, get interested in okay so um certainly something like the the Brian Lord uh single the big surfer which is sort of a um uh like a John F Kennedy impersonation type of a thing judging a um, uh a dance contest that was um licensed to uh capital just for a very short time and what would end up happening it was that um, Zappa and Buff would go to all the record stores and basically buy up all the copies of the records and then make it look like the records were doing really well, so that they would use that information as ammunition to license the recordings to a, a larger label. So it's kind of an ingenious type of thing, which wouldn't happen
1: today, but that's sort of the the way things were done at the time. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah.
0: Ooh.
1: Ooh. Yeah, look at look that a sharp
8: Woody. It is a great pleasure to be back on the beach here at Santa Monica. Yeah. Now, well, you must all realize that these appearances are very important to me. Jockey gave me a fresh bleach job just last night. And Pierre has been helping me wax down my board in the back of the woody on the way over from the airport. Now, at this time, I should like to thank the governor for the foam rubber hirachis I'm wearing. They are uh, very comfy. And now... And uh, now... Jockey, for goodness sake, tell Teddy to pull up his baggies. And now, I'd like to say it's a great pleasure to be your guest at this affair. And I should like to get on with the dance contest. Now, all of you uh, ho-daddies, grab your uh, ho mummies, and we'll uh, all hike, or I mean stop. Oh, well, they they know I'm under pressure. Now, when I say hit it, I want you to make a big, strong wedge with a solid left-hand macaroni. Then hang five and shoot the curl. Now, hit it. Ah, you're looking Good. Jockey, I wish you'd get Caroline to turn her amplifier down. Yeah, remind me to get Bobby a new reed tomorrow. all oh, want to get into the act. Yes, yes, I think we uh, have a winner. It's the uh, little couple from over in the uh, corner. Uh, no, don't stop the music. Let's uh, bring them up here and uh, give them a big hand. you big surfer.
2: Hi, big surfer.
8: Hiya uh, kids, hiya, uh, higher, hiya higher, uh,
9: higher. Oh gosh, this is really
2: exciting oh, yeah, What
8: yeah. do we win? Well, as the winners of our dance contest You'll receive an all-expense-paid oh, trip really? oh. uh, Yes, an all-expense-paid trip As the first members of the Peace Corps To be sent to uh, Alabama
7: any idea what might have inspired that one
6: um there were there were a few other songs that had that particular title and um there were uh, there were some groups that were doing so- songs that were similar to that it's you know it's basically it's basically a guy in love in love with the with a uh, a woman obviously old enough to be his grandmother but what what do what he's actually doing is he's he's uh he's uh Living with this this older woman, but what is what is uh,
10: she doing? She's actually robbing banks and then bringing back the money, which is what they're living on. <laughs> which is kind of an unusual
6: premise for a song. Um,
10: and but that was sort of a that was
6: sort of a a, a common topic for a few different um, groups at the time. I found other songs that had the same title, but they weren't the same song. Um, sort of from that time period. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That was maybe it may have been an in joke at the time or something. I don't know what it was, but uh, that's sort of what that was, and that you know, was it was funny because you know Frank sounds you know totally different than you would normally hear him, and and you know everybody's playing differently than they would normally play, so they would you know sort of take chances that way with um, some of these these song parodies that they were doing, but they. Obviously they couldn't get anybody interested in that.
9: Say you'll never leave. That jelly you got is too much.
11: I just couldn't make the grade without you, sugar. Please stay with
9: me and let me whisper sweet words of pismotology and discuss the pulchritudes of your jams and jellies. Please, Granny, say you will be mine. Oh, I love you so much, Granny. You're so sweet. Those wrinkles
6: just blow my mind. What was what was probably the most um, I don't know uh, shocking of all is that no one could, could interest it in uh, "Love of My Life," which you would have figured someone would have been, you know, someone would have licensed that that recording out and actually released it rather than. Dave Arney actually, you know, sort of creating a label and putting it out himself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of it's kind of unusual. I mean, everybody's so familiar with Love of My Life. You say, oh, this is such a commercial song, but at the time, for whatever reason, there wasn't any interest in it. It's one of those things that is, uh, just confounding, really. You know, no one can understand why, but that's one of those things that happens. Love
12: of my life.
6: They we were trying to find something that grabs somebody's attention to you know, to get them noticed and at least, you know, get a get something licensed to a label for say a thousand or, or two. You know, that's what they would basically shoot for. They try to get like a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars to license a recording to a label like uh, Delphi, which was run by Bob Kane, that that type of thing. They were able to succeed and uh, with uh, Delphi quite a bit. And also with um, original sound, with uh, that's uh, Art Lebeau's, um company, and they were able to place all of those things. But the funny thing is that one of the one of the things that even um, Bob Kane of, of Delphi had turned down was what was later called "Take Your Clothes Off When You Dance." You know, the early, very early version of it. it the 1963 version
5: which is never on sunday correct
6: that was never on sunday which is what was called at the time and of course that was done two years even before that as a jazz piece into doing these parodies of things, because uh, just examining what Paul Buff was doing at the time on his own stuff, he was doing parodies of songs, so that obviously was something that uh, Paul and, and Frank had in common. They were sort of united in the fact that they wanted to come up with something that somebody would notice, and it seemed that at the time that song parodies was the sort of the way to go, at least to start with. And then that would sort of open the door for whatever else that they were planning on doing. That was the original approach that they were, that they were looking at. And, you know, they succeeded for a certain time. And then, you know, once um, Paul Buff um, was asked by Art LeBeau to create a new studio at the uh, original sound, then, you know, Frank was basically left to do his own thing. Which we all know how it turned out. So, but that's the that's the thing about it. It's it's it has to start from something, and these are the beginnings right here. And the, and you know certainly the influences of all of these um, doo wop artists and you know other R and B things that uh, that Zappa listened to. This is definitely the the start of the whole thing. And even in Zappa's early instrumentals, um, you know he was doing things where you say to yourself, well. Um, I can see you know where this is sort of based if you take something like um can't stand up for example if you if you know the song uh you can't sit down well that's obviously where the song came from mm. that's where the where, where the title is you know sort of a, a parody of but Frank came up with a an instrumental in which he worked on with Paul buff and that's basically you know this Frank doing the guitar parts and Paul doing the the drums and and, um, half the track, you know, Frank's is doing a regular guitar solo and then he decided that he wanted to do a a fuzz solo for the other half of the song. So you know, he was experimenting all the time, which is actually a good way of doing things because with all the experimentation, sometimes you come up with something that's you know, really, really good. And that's what, that's a perfect example of that. He he realized later on that he had to sort of pare the song down so that uh, people could really uh, get the most out of it. And you know, it's just one of these things that songwriters do. They they start out with something and then they just keep refining it until they get it to the point where um, it gets his point across in the best possible way. And that's what he what he ended up doing. Yeah. It's interesting though that in
7: later life, you know, he would. Um be quite disparaging about songs that talk to, you know, people writing lyrics of lyrics about their hearts breaking and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, he,
6: <laughs> was
7: <doing it> <laughs> you
6: know, the, the, the funny, the funny thing is, I mean, we all, we all know that, I mean, uh, Zappa was not one of these bushy type of people. He didn't, he didn't like to have all this emotion going on in the, in the, in the songs and stuff like that. But, you know, typically when, when he had something like, um, uh, the the song that he that he that he wrote for the uh, the heartbreakers something like that um, um, you know every time I see you, for example, you know the lyrics were not written by Frank. you could tell I mean that's those are Ray Collins's you know lyrics the music is Frank's but the, the point is that he was not averse to doing a song like that. It's just it, it just didn't come out of him naturally to write lyrics that were so, you know, heartfelt, I guess. You know, that's, that's just he was not able to communicate that particular emotion. Um, actually, throughout his whole career, actually. It's not just at the beginning. It's just, it's just something he didn't feel natural doing. And, you know, it's just one of these things where, uh, you know, he tried his best to get around that. And that's why he sort of, uh, you know, explored the musical directions that he ended up going into. But it's just that, um, you know, for certain things, you had to come up with something that was commercial and sort of relationship-based and things like that. So, like I said, of necessity, um, you know, uh, Ray Collins was certainly a good foil, you know, for, for things like that to to sort of give the, the the music that Zappa came up with some some validity
13: by having you know words that actually mean something to somebody. <laughs>
0: Pulled up tight, why don't you do me right? You got me begging on my knee. You
11: got me begging on my knee. You got me begging on my knees,
0: saying, Baby, please come back to me. Why don't you do me right? Why don't you do me right? Why don't you do me right? You got me pulled up tight, why don't you do me right? And all I wanted was a wife Girl, you're trying to wreck my life Why don't you do me right? Why don't you do me right? Why don't you do me right? You got me pulled up tight Why don't you do me right?
11: yelling what I'm going to do. You know, little girl, you know I won't always be sitting home waiting for you in our little apartment. You know, I won't always be sitting there next to the radiator, next to those curtains where the big roses are. No, I won't be sitting there listening to that little $45 record player you got me. No, I won't always be sitting there in my T-shirt. No, oh, I won't be sitting there with my shoes and socks off in my brown work pants waiting for you to come home. No, you're a fool if you think I'm gonna go out and do that for you. Cause you're trying to wreck my life and I'm mad with you, boy. I'm mad with you.
0: Why don't you do me right? Girl, what you trying to do? Now, oh, what you trying to do? What you trying to do? I'm true to you, what you trying to do? I know you wanna wreck my life. I know you wanna wreck my life. I know you wanna wreck my life and all I wanted was a wife. I ain't going to be sitting much longer.
11: I won't be sitting in that chair. I won't be sitting there listening, listening for your footsteps coming up the hall to our little apartment that we called home with that radiator and those big roses on the curtains. No, I won't be waiting for you no more because I'm going to leave you. I'm
0: mad with you, I'm the girl I'm gonna hit the road The girl I'm gonna hit the road A girl I'm gonna hit the road tied to carry low Roses on the
7: I mean, one one that I've uh, eager for uh, you know the world out there to hear is a song called Waltz, which is an uh, an instrumental track, uh, and it shows you know the early Frank play- um,
6: experimenting on the guitar. Waltz was was the uh, the fourth uh, song on that particular um, uh, reel of tape that. Frank put together. It was funny because he did all these um, uh, these tracks, and he he spliced all five of the of these these tracks together on the same reel, no space in between them, kind of like what he would do, you know, later on on, on the albums. And um, "Waltz" was was the uh, was you know certainly a, a very unique track on on that particular tape. and I was kind of surprised when I heard it. Because it was, you know, totally unlike anything that that I had heard Frank do. Because it it certainly has some jazz elements to it. Um, It has, you know, different uh, uh, guitar tones in there, which are, you know, kind of uh, unique to the recording. I mean, Frank didn't really uh, do anything that was kind of close to that. I mean, it was just it's sort of a different approach to an instrumental. Um, and, you know, Frank played all the parts and and it was one of these things where, you know, listening to it, um, you can tell that it was transferred from an acetate because, um, you know, you can hear a little bit of surface noise. I tried to remove as much of it as they, as they could. Um, but it was one of these things where it was sort of a, uh, a one-time performance that, that Frank wanted to. Uh, capture on the on the tape, so that's why he transferred the acetate to the to the tape, and it came came out to be a very um, interesting experience for anybody that's that's heard it, because it's again it's just totally unlike um, anything uh, any instrumental that that uh, Zapp had ever done throughout his whole career. So that's why uh, a, you know a great starting point for the at least the early uh, guitar soloing ability. Of Frank Zappa is, uh, certainly, uh, Wolves.
7: Oh, that was um, a band that I really didn't know anything about until I read your book Cosmic Debris and uh, talked about how Frank had engineered some of their early recordings um, and you know, eventually I saw them in concert in Germany uh, several years back. Um, I understand if now obviously they're all getting on quite a bit. They've obviously retired now,
6: as I understand it. Well, as far as I can tell, um, I don't think they've played recently. I, I think they did a benefit show Uh, I think it was last year, Um, and um, that's—I think that was the last that they actually did. I'm not sure if they're they're doing any private shows here or there, but um, yeah, I don't—I don't think they're really doing anything at this particular point. But I'll tell you, it's just—it's amazing that this song, uh, "Bustin' Surfboards." I mean, it has a life of its own. It's just amazing that it just keeps selling on and on and on and on. I mean, out of the download stuff that I have available, definitely the most popular song, which is downloaded by far, is, is, is their song. It's just a, it's just amazing that they, that it just, it goes on just, you know, for a very simple recording, it has a life of its own. It certainly helped to be in the movie, um, Pulp Fiction, you know, including that song in there. But the, but the thing about it is that, um, it's a, you know it's it's one of these things where at the time no one really you know paid too much attention to it nationally. uh it was a very big local hit in California, but outside of California, no one even knew it existed for the most part mm. and you know it's, and, and Frank worked on the stuff after that, and uh you know in many ways the, the stuff that Frank engineered for the tornadoes is um, probably better. Recorded and may not have been as 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 uh, successful commercially, but it still holds up very well musically, which is kind of what's you know important uh, at this stage of the game. One
7: uh, one thing I wonder is um, how did Tarantino pick up on that busting Circles? How did he stumble upon that himself? I don't, I
6: don't suppose I don't know if you know. Can you can you repeat that? I had I couldn't I couldn't make that out. I,
7: I just wondered how it was that Tarantino.
6: Some oh Tarantino, okay. Well, he he was a um he's a, a very eclectic music fan, and um uh, he he knew all of those obscure uh surf instrumentals. Okay, I mean, Bustin' Surfboards got more notoriety than a lot of the other ones that were on there. I mean, there was some really really obscure ones on there that uh on the on the soundtrack, which. Uh, you would say, well, how did he find out about this one? So, I mean, Buster Surfboards" was actually more known than some of the other things. But it's still, you know, in terms of a national song, I mean, it's certainly, you know, most people still didn't know it. I mean, people on the East Coast of the U.S. would not have been too familiar with it. Um, But some of the other tracks that were used on Pulp Fiction are, you know, borderline, you know, Really, you know, super obscure, you know, because uh, they were only they would only be known by, say, hardcore, you know, surf uh, record collectors, that type of thing. And that's basically what you know he was including in there. He, he found songs that were that that were ideal in terms of matching up with the action on the screen. And you know, to his credit, I mean, he came up with a very unusual. Um, you know, soundtrack of of uh, of, uh, of songs that were perfectly in line with what was happening uh, in the film. So you know, it's just it's just one of those things that happens, and it's it's probably again it's another one of those once in a lifetime kind of things. But that's basically one of the uh, the interesting things that happens with a with a film, and you know, it was just for a lot of people. They, they just figured okay this is a film okay it came out through this guy Quentin Tarantino little did anyone know that it basically put him on the map and he stayed on the map as a result of that you know it's just it's, it's funny it's funny that way just like um, um, other films that before they came out you wouldn't have thought you know uh, anything about them like uh, give you an example um, you take uh, dirty dancing for example people before that film came out, they're like, well, oh, what is this? This is a film about uh, some dancing in the early 60s. And the- and then when the film came out, all of a sudden, something that was really low budget and everything else made an absolute fortune because it cost very little to make. It's one of these things like, you know, Pulp Fiction with the tornadoes. Little did they know that would end up spurring on a sort of reunion for them. You know, so... um you know, it's just one of these, these things that happens by accident and you just run with it when it does. You know, that's basically what uh, what goes on on, a, on occasion. You get these uh, these flukes, you know, that kind of happen and uh, they create things that uh, you wouldn't have imagined before.
4: One of the bands that recorded at PAL Studios was the Tornadoes, a surf band from Redlands, California, and one of the first to receive national airplay with a surf instrumental. The song, released in 1962, was called Busting Surfboards. Some 30-odd years later, it was included in the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction, and the band was subsequently invited to play at Zapanali in 2003, playing a great set that included the cover of Frank's Grunion Run. The group sadly retired a few years ago, but here we hear bass player Gerald Sanders and the rest of the band reflecting on the initial success of Bustin' Surfboards and their recording sessions with Frank as engineer at PAL.
14: The three of us, Je- uh, Jesse, uh, Rolly, and myself, had just come from Alabama uh, Five years previous to that, and uh, we had no idea that uh, you couldn't just go and make a record and have it be a hit. So we went and recorded this record, and we all distributed it to the record stores and to the high schools schools and and all over. And uh, I'd be damned (laughs) if it didn't take off and got to be number one in the Inland Empire uh, August of 62. Yeah, I joined uh, a band in July. And George joined, I think, in July. And so uh, that was such an encouraging thing that we decided, hell, let's make an album. Mm -hmm. We recorded about half and half, probably, or maybe a little bit more of it at uh, Losi Sound in Riverside. And we recorded uh, a bunch of it at Powell Studios with, what was his name? Paul Buff was the the owner. And uh, Frank Zappa, a young Frank Zappa, was a recording engineer there. That was in Cucamonga. You guys remember which songs we recorded there at Pal?
5: We were discussing that earlier. Vaquero, Vaquero, Vaquero Malaguena, tornado,
15: tornado. One so. that I remember for sure was uh, Moon Moondog. because dog. we wanted to get yeah. into it. You're on your knees during the recording right. session, yes. barking yeah. like a dog, and uh, Johnny Be Good. Uh, yeah.
14: Jack and I got down on all fours uh, and, and barked and at each mic other. The microphone in between you. Yeah, for the. Uh, Beginning of uh, Moon Dog.
9: This, this is something we should have had a picture of. Yeah, you know. wouldn't that have been great? This was really Videos. I, I don't <laughs> know if they had cameras in those days.
15: <laughs>
14: I'm kind of proud of the fact that Frank Zappa was our uh, recording engineer, and uh, he he had some uh, some real good suggestions on our songs. In fact, mm-hmm. he helped us as far as uh, instrumentation and ar- and arrangement and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, uh, it was good to have somebody like that in the studio. But I remember. Even then, he had long hair, long yeah. dark hair, long, and and we thought, what kind of weird guy is this? Remember yeah. that's he had stringy hair. He was real different. We're thinking, and my God, who is this guy? You All know?
15: these recording engineers are kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, there's a there's a thing there too about about the recording when we went over to to Pal Studios they allowed us allowed us to play over there where I could play Exactly, I could play, right. the exactly. I could
6: play
14: uh, like, the like I normally would we know? liked the sound they got much yeah, like better a, there. Yeah. Oh, boy yeah. some rickety equipment
15: though remember the yes. surroundings were just really yeah. you know, not as, nearly as nice as but whatever the Loses but it was comfortable Yeah, yeah. the yeah. Loses was were such a sterile yeah, room like, it was all white you play your music you know yeah. It was comfortable. You remember know, the uh lesson surfboards was recorded on my guitar. I had an echophonic, mm-hmm. a little continuous tape uh, echo chamber. And then, of course, the Fender Reverb became the mainstay mm-hmm. later for all the surf.
14: Do you remember when we uh, finished that recording session that day with uh, Frank Zappa and some girls were outside the, uh, the studio waiting for us? And uh, we got in... in uh, this was back when uh, hanging... A BA and uh, what? The we moon? did all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's quite popular at that time. Well, we call it mooning or uh-huh. BA, you know? BA. And uh, they were following us when we, as we were leaving. And uh, George, what did you do?
9: <laughs> were you a bad boy? We were going to lunch, weren't we? <laughs>
14: yeah, I think we were going to lunch, yeah. yeah.
5: Well, I, I don't recall doing anything untoward, George. played are the lovely young ladies. I, yeah. <laughs> Moon over Miami. Yeah.
14: Oh, I think, I think they turned off at the next uh, signal then. No, nah, they loved us for that. <laughs> oh, God. But those, I mean. We did moon them. Think about the, we, the, the we. what we did back then was outrageous then, but yeah. today probably.
0: It'd still be yeah. pretty outrageous. Maybe today it would be some of the things that. we did. It was outrageous
14: times.
4: When they first entered pal frank apparently played them the cruncher a song written by dave arney and paul buff and told guitarist roly sanders that the guiro light percussion sound running throughout the song came from him stroking his comb across the grid of a small heating unit at the studios this was his only performance on the record in 2005 the tornadoes recorded the cruncher for the now and then album produced by greg russo's crossfire publications the recording sessions were also filmed for the documentary freak out in cucamonga which is still to see the light of day
6: trying to grow a chin um actually was taken from the, the the main riff of of dog patch creeper which is a weird title to begin with but the, the the velveteens were a um a group of guys um basically it was basically a family group with a with a few friends in there um johnny valenzuela was the head of the group, and um, Funny enough, his father is playing piano on the track, and um, you know a lot of his relatives are in the in the band. It was a pretty big band, um, and um, one of the guys in the uh, in the Tornadoes, George White, uh, played with him after that single came out. And um, it was a, it was a pretty wild type of a band. They would typically play weddings and and things like that, and um, it was just a it was sort of a very crude type of a recording, but that riff is something that, you know, everybody's like, whoa, this is incredible. This is such a, you know, a catchy riff. And then they realize, oh, this is the same one I'm I'm trying to grow a chin. And they're like, oh, that's where that came from. And certainly, um, you know, uh, Mike Keneally caught that, certainly when, when, when uh, Frank played the original Velveteen single um, to him, uh, before the eighty um, eight tour. And you know it was just a, it was amazing that the that particular riff is you know sort of got incorporated into into that particular song and and you know how it works. It's another one of these situations where something in a completely different context can work in another context. And it was just kind of interesting that sort of a typical you know three chord uh, instrumental, which was, you know, sort of a, um, you know, a rough type of a recording. It stands up really well because that that particular group they they had something, despite you know how crude it was. That w- that's who they were. So that's that's exactly the way they were when they played. So it's so it's something that's sort of genuine, and um, you know something about that particular song, you know, had some sort of an impact on Frank, and that's that's the key to the whole thing whatever Paul Buff was putting out on any of his labels, Frank heard all those things. It's kind of obvious because the, the, the influences of those, of those songs turned up in later things. So this is the most obvious example of it, certainly. And and Dog, Dog Dogpatch Creeper is one of these things where, uh, you know, it's a, it's sort of, it's sort of a, a song that has its own personality and you would figure, well, uh, if anybody else did it, it probably wouldn't have come out the same way. It probably would have come out a little too clean sounding, that type of thing. And then when Paul Buff recorded a, a group like the Velveteens, he would just say, well, the song you know, sounds kind of sloppy and everything else, but that's what he called the power of amateurs. You know, The, the fact that these are not professional musicians, and not, they're not pretending to be, yet they they can come up with something that has some sort of a charm to it, some sort of a magic to it that a very polished group would never be able to accomplish. And that's what, you know, dog patch creeper has to offer that that sort of, um, you know, it's one of those happy accidents that were, that was committed to tape at the time. Yeah, the the uh, the Velveteen single came out in October of 1960, and Frank uh, would have would have met Paul Buff like maybe a, a month or two after that, and certainly you know uh, Paul had at, had all the stuff out there. I mean, it's uh, from from what Paul had told me. I mean, he had all the tape reels there. He had copies of all the records uh, that he had released up until that point out there that he could certainly listen to and Frank listened to the whole the whole bunch so um, it's just one of these things where that's what you know that's what happened because Frank had a copy of the original single when he played it for Mike Keneally, so certainly you know he took one of them when he was there I yeah. mean, you, you know he, he worked there so he could take one certainly so that's basically what what happened with that and that that particular single you know stayed with him the impact of that stayed with him even though he figured well no one's going to even notice. Well, the thing is that you know how everything is today. Everybody dissects everything to the nth degree, and um, people people are not easily fooled. So anyone that you know had the original single or or heard it someplace uh, could realize that oh, this is the same thing, and that's that's what the, that's one of those things that fans realize that you know everything comes from something, and that's where. You know, that riff from trying to grow a chin comes from. Certainly, you know, the patch creeper is uh is basically the you know, sort of that riff played to death, but it's you know, sort of developed and and uh done in sort of their in their uh unique way.
7: Um you mentioned the um that Paul had transferred the five tracks. Uh, this is something that um on the, the recent uh Zappa Family Trust release, the Penguin in Bondage with the story about the early mothers. Uh, Frank talks about the the five track um, that uh, Paul pioneered. You know, he actually from this old uh, makeup table or whatever it was. Um, is, right. Does that still exist? Does that does that recording console still in existence anywhere? The five track.
6: Well, um, from what I understand, um, Weasel has the um, the five track mechanism, but the the actual. Um, the actual uh, cabinetry in which it was originally placed, that's long gone. I mean, the Weasel can't play anything with that particular fragment of the whole thing because it's everything he needs to reproduce the, uh, the tapes is just not there. I mean, uh, the tapes were, um, like I think, believe, one-inch tapes. I mean, I had, I had a couple of them here. Uh, I sent some of them back to, to Paul, but they were basically, you know, one-inch uh, uh, tapes. Occasionally, there was a—I uh, think I saw something that was two—but I think there was like a one-inch tape where all five tracks were recorded on. And um, but for the most part, you know, Paul retained the um, uh, the two-track, you know, mixdowns of things, stuff like that. But it's unfortunate that the five-track that Paul made is not usable, and neither is the 10-track that he made for Art LeBeau. Art LeBeau has that, but that's not usable either. So it's a shame. These two very unique, you know, uh, pieces of equipment that were way ahead of their, their their time can't actually, you know, try to reproduce any of this stuff uh, today, which is, you know, it's really a shame, but that's unfortunately the way that it is, and... There's very few of the five track tapes left over, anyway. Um, you know, Paul had, I think, two of them, I think, out of all the ones that were done. So anything that was retained was just a sort of a mix down. But that's just one of those things that happens over time. You don't, you know, you don't keep stuff from the past. Some people keep things, other people don't. In this case, it
7: wasn't kept. Um, there's another interesting song on there, which, uh, again, no, no Zappa involvement, but you'll know it Desiree by uh, Paul Buff and Ray Collins. Uh, right. Which I think Buff plays all the instruments and Ray does all the vocals.
6: Yes, yes, because that that's something that's been you know uh, disputed a lot of times. And and whatever you know whatever Paul Buff says about what was recorded, I mean, he was there. I mean, he he recorded all the parts, and then uh, Ray came up with the 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 vocals on there. It was sort of like uh, trying to come up with uh, like a Four Seasons type of a song. And that was sort of the approach that they wanted to, to come up with. And, and, you know, Paul did a lot of the instrumentation, which you know, he hasn't really been given credit for. Um, you know, it's, it's typical for someone, you know, like Zapp or anybody else to, to you know, say, oh, I did this, I did that. Well, you know, if you actually sort of dissect everything that's said, you realize that a lot of that, those claims are not are not true. As it was, Frank couldn't even remember... Uh, the varez album correctly and what was on the back of that album and, and mm-hmm. when he, you know when he got it and all the other details related to that he couldn't even get that story correct so you, you realize that when he starts talking about things that are more recent and and that's not remembered correctly either obviously it's just you say to yourself well you know it's uh, it's a something where you know you want to give yourself a little bit more credit because you're the one being interviewed um but the but the thing is that um you know people can dispute whatever whatever they want but the point is that if the the people that were actually playing on it say they did they did this and they did that well certainly i'm going to believe them rather than maybe someone that wasn't there and that's just one of these things that's uh that's the whole thing you know the the key to the whole thing is you certainly need a group of people who to do anything, especially with recording, I mean, certainly with the types of stuff they were doing, you needed to have, uh, you know, typical instrumentation, you know, four tracks, five tracks of music, and then vocals on top. But because of the the machinery that Buff had, you you can actually fake it by sort of overdubbing it all yourself and then, you know, pass it off as a band rather than, you know, maybe one or two guys actually doing something on it.
16: The Zapper cast dedicated to Frank Zappa's guitars, amplifiers, effects pedals, studio equipment, and other musical devices. I'm Mick Eakers and today I'm going to be talking to you about the very first guitars that Frank Zappa played. Frank Zappa was initially attracted to percussion, and his first instrument was in fact the drums. He didn't start playing guitar till he was about 17 years old in 1958. His father had an old acoustic guitar that he used to keep in a cupboard and occasionally he would bring it out and as Frank said go whack-a-whack-a-whacker on it. As a child Frank remembers looking at this guitar and wondering how you've got so many different notes out of it. He hadn't actually figured out what the frets were for at this stage. Frank started playing on a guitar that had been bought by his brother Bobby for $1.50 at an auction. It was an old Archtop F-hole guitar without a name. The strings were about half an inch above the fretboard And Frank said it looked like it had been sandblasted. He likes it because, although it was an acoustic, if he played it right next to the bridge, he could get that wiry Johnny Guitar Watson tone that he liked. So Bobby gave this almost impossible-to-play monster of a guitar to Frank, who picked out lead lines while Bobby played chords on his father's guitar. You can hear Frank and Bobby playing these instruments, accompanying their friend Don Van Vliet on the track Lost in a Whirlpool, which appears on the Lost Episodes CD. Frank soon realised that he needed to learn to play chords like Bobby, and this was impossible on the archtop, so he swapped guitars with Bobby, picked up his dad's instrument and studied photographs, other players, and eventually got a Mickey Baker guitar book and learnt the basic chord shapes. And the next step was electrification. Frank bought a DeArmond hole Pickup and fitted it to his father's instrument. This is essentially a regular guitar pickup mounted on a small metal plate with a couple of clips so that you could place it in the sound hole of a Spanish-style acoustic guitar. Frank most likely had the dearmant 210. This was the main model they were making in the 50s and 60s. It had adjustable pole pieces and a built-in volume control. And these were very popular in the day as a relatively cheap and easy way to electrify an old acoustic guitar. Frank didn't really consider this a proper electric guitar, but in fact, these are very popular with some of the blues guitarists that he loved. Lightning Hopkins in particular used one um, on many recordings. They were known for having a really nice tone for slide guitar. If you're interested in finding out a bit more about these, blues guitarist and diamond expert Doug Jones has got a great website at littlebrotherblues.com. There's a very fuzzy, small black-and-white picture of Frank Zappa in the Antelope Valley High School 1958 yearbook, which shows him holding a white guitar. This is in fact a Supra dual tone electric guitar, a very stylish Art Deco instrument that was originally produced for sale in mail order catalogues. It had two single coil pickups, disguised as the more expensive Gibson style humbuckers, and individual volume and tone controls for each pickup. Frank's have never mentioned owning such a stylish instrument, so we have to assume he'd borrowed it from a friend. This is pure supposition on my part, but I like to think that it belonged to Alex Snoofer, Frank's friend who later became Alex St. Clair Snoofer and played with Don Vleet in Captain Bivod and his magic band. From what we know of Alex's character, he was a sharp dresser apparently, this is just the sort of instrument that he might have bought. If anybody listening has any information about this guitar, I would love to hear from you. We now fast forward three years, the 1961, when Frank Zappa got hold of his first real electric guitar. Frank was living in Ontario, California, with his first wife, and he rented a Fender Telecaster for $15 a month from the nearby Ontario Music on 215 West G Street. I was saddened to discover that after... Being in business for over 50 years, Ontario Music closed down just last year. So remember, all you musicians out there, if you have a good local guitar shop in your town, use it or lose it. For those of you who don't know, the Fender Telecaster was first produced in 1950 and was the world's first commercially successful solid-body electric guitar. Leo Fender came up with a classic design, which is still in production today, almost unchanged, The Telecaster has a separate bolt-on neck and a simple but stylish body shape that can be machined from a flat slab of wood. The Telecaster had two pickups and a simple electronic circuit consisting of a volume and tone control and a pickup selector switch. The only photograph that we know of uh, with Frank and this Telecaster was taken in May 1961 and shows Frank rehearsing with his band The Boogie Men in his garage. You can see this picture reproduced in the booklet accompanying the Mystery Disc CD. It's a very murky little photograph, but you can just about make out that Frank is holding a blonde finished telecaster with a white pickguard. The Rosewood fingerboard dates the guitar quite precisely because these were only introduced in 1959, and we know Frank rented it in early 1961. As it turned out, the $15 a month was too much for Frank to afford, and he had to give it back to the shop after around six months. Later in 1961, Frank Zappa somehow found enough money to purchase a Fender Jazzmaster. This was a very different guitar from the Telecaster he'd used previously. Fender introduced the Jazzmaster in 1958 and at the time it was their top of the range electric guitar. The Jazzmaster had a host of new features and some very advanced electronics for the day, likely to have been a big plus for Frank. It had two large single coil pickups, these had a much more mellow tone than Fender had previously been known for, And as well as the conventional volume and tone controls and pickup selector on the bottom of the guitar, it had a second set of controls built into the top of the guitar, enabling you to preset your rhythm and lead settings and switch between the two. The Jazzmaster also had a brand new floating vibrato system with a long curved arm. This would likely have been Frank's first introduction to the delights of the Whammy Bar. Armed with his new instrument, Frank got a gig with the lounge band Joe Perino and the Melotones. Again there is a useful picture in the Mystery Disc CD booklet. And from the picture we can see that Frank's guitar would have been in the standard sunburst finish with a tortoiseshell pickguard. You can also see Frank's expression in the photograph, very clearly implying that he didn't really want to be there. He stuck playing cabaret music for about 10 months and then gave up in disgust and put his Jazzmaster behind the sofa and didn't touch it for several months. Fortunately for us, Frank Zappa eventually picked up the Jazzmaster again and he used it regularly until 1964, playing it in local R&B bands and recording various singles at Paul Buff's PAL studio in Cucamonga. There is some mystery about what finally happened to the guitar, in an interview, Frank said that it was repossessed. However, he may be misremembering here, and it is more likely that the guitar was given to Paul Buff as part of the deal when Frank bought the Cucamonga Studios. What we do know that at the same time as he bought the studio, Frank purchased his beloved Gibson ES5 Switchmaster guitar. This was the instrument that he was to use on the first three Mothers of Invention albums, and he would keep it all his life. But that is another story if this kind of thing is interesting to you please do check out the zappers gear website at www.zappersgear.com before too long there should be some information on there about the book i'm currently writing on this very subject i'm going to hand you back to scott now thank you very much for listening this is mickey because signing out okay guys one more time for the world
7: Documentary film not uh, making an appearance. I don't know if it's ever been shown anywhere. Uh, oh, I, I, you know,
6: I don't really know. Um, honestly, I don't know what happened with that film because it was never communicated to me what their difficulties were. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, using the the early music. I mean, uh, well, Paul Buff and I, you know, have the early stuff, so that's not that's not a problem. I mean, certainly they could have used whatever they wanted on that, but. Um, I don't know what the what the issue was in terms of that. I I I I was sent years ago a sort of a rough cut of it, but I don't really know what the intention was of the you know, beyond that. I don't know what editing was required further than that. I mean it was, probably needed to be trimmed a little bit here and there, but I really don't know what happened with that. It's a it's a shame because it would have been very you know, helpful to, uh, to fans to, to see that sort of thing, you know, right in, on, a, on a screen, you know, that that sort of thing. And, you know, very much the same way as some of those other documentaries, you know, that were done uh, kind of covered, you know, different aspects of Zapper's career. It would have been nice to have something from the really early period to, to you know, to enjoy as
7: well. Um, I mean, there, wasn't there a concert held as well in uh, Cucamonga or...? Uh, with Paul Buff and various other people, musicians that have played um, in the early days, that, that, that forms part of that that film.
6: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything. You know, that's the weird thing. There's no, there's no, um, there's no photographs of any of this stuff. That's the worst part because there's no sort of physical documentation yeah. of any of, of any of that stuff happening. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a real shame. But, you know, it's one of these things where if you're just doing your own thing, are you really thinking about, you know, who's going to be caring about something 50 years later. That's one of those things where, you know, only someone who is really obsessed with, you know, themselves and and having people check out what they're doing would be documenting something like that. But, you know, other groups did it. But unfortunately, in this case, there really isn't anything. Not even on film, nothing. Not not even a photograph. I mean, it's a... Again, it's a shame, but that's just unfortunately what we have to deal with.
5: There were two tracks I wanted to ask you about, Greg, for the for the show. One is a track called High Steppin'.
6: Well, you know, that, that actually is, um, that's actually on, um, Lumpy Gravy. Yep. It's, uh, Twice the Speed. And that was recorded at the same session as, um, the, uh, the, you know, the very early 1961 version of, uh, I don't know what title I'm supposed to use. I called it Never on Sunday, but it was Take Your Clothes Off When You Dance, the jazz one.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: That was recorded at the same session with the same guys. Uh.
16: Um,
6: this was done, um, just going off the top of my head, I believe it was January 61, and a uh, very short piece. It's obviously, you know, from an acetate. That's what. That's the only way that uh, it exists. And um, you know, our version's a little bit longer than the one that they had on there. It's also at the regular time, unlike the the uh, the one that was a little, you know, sped up. It was actually double the speed on the on lumpy gravy. And um, it's it's. It's interesting that you know Frank was coming up with these you know sort of jazz pieces, and that's sort of like um that's sort of like something that you might have heard in the 1920s. You know, it sounds like a really really old style jazz type of a thing. Um, you know, not cleanly played. I mean, it was a little it's a little bit sloppy here and there, but you know, it's a, it's something where he was trying to come up with um you know sort of an identity for his stuff. And, you know, he didn't know where he was going at the time, obviously. But it was a, an interesting little, I call it a cameo because it's a very, very short piece. But uh, it's just as important as anything else that he created. <laughs>
3: Time now for a little pause and a very special treat for you loyal Zappa cast listeners out there. Uh, We have a uh, recording of Mr. Denny Wally, an old compadre of Frank from the Cougamonga era, who of course later went on to be the very famous Denny Wally on slide guitar and vocals. This is Denny performing an acoustic guitar piece on a radio show just before his gig with the muffin men in berlin on april 14, 2011 and we'd like to thank denny for allowing us to use the piece here ladies and gentlemen mr denny wally <music>
17: Hey, this is Denny Wally, and you're listening to Zappacast. I've got a little trivia question that, uh, you might enjoy. Who knocked out Frank Zappa's tooth back in 1957? This happened in Lancaster, California at AVJUHS. And uh, anyone that happens to know the name of the person responsible for this dastardly deed, why don't you just uh, send it on in to uh, the idiot bastard? And... uh, Everybody can give it their best shot, and if no one gets it, I'll reveal that person's name. Anyway, keep, uh, keep listening to Frank, and uh, I will be out there uh, traveling around a bit this year. The Magic Band is back together for another concert at ATP this year, and I'll also be in Sweden in a few more weeks uh, playing with Jimmy Ogren, amazing slide guitar player, Morgan Ogren's brother, actually. So I'll be playing with Jimmy Ogren's band. Uh, we're going to do one or two concerts, and I hope to see you out there. Later.
5: And the other thing that I wanted to ask about was, um, here it is, the PAL Studio Band and Allison Buff, I'm Losing Status at the High School. Yeah. Where did you Where did you find that one? Was that in the, in the collection that um, Paul sent you, or was it um, – you know, something that you picked up from another source, or how did that wind up on the collection?
6: Well, Paul didn't have a, a, a tape of that one. Um, that was um, that that would have been from the uh, the radio show. Yep. Um, and the thing the thing about it was that um, uh, that's actually I think one channel of the of the radio show because it was a stereo. It was in '75, right? This one with Beefheart. Yep. And um, that was, you know, one channel from that. But the thing is that since um, Paul and Alison Buff are on that track, and certainly it was not at Pal, and uh, that's that's the only one really that you know we could actually justify using. You know, the other ones that were for that, um, I was a teenage mold shop product. Or I should say that that, that uh, a play, if you will, if you're, or or opera, whatever you want to call it, um, that those other tracks were done while um, Paul Buff was at Original Sound. So I mean, that's not something where Paul was involved with any of those other things. You know, like you know the uh, the other stuff that was done with Beefheart or whatever. You know, Paul Buff wasn't there for any of that. Okay. Uh, but. Um, But, you know, what became Status Back Baby, certainly, was something that uh, Paul and Alison Buff were directly involved with, and that's the funny thing about it. Uh, um, Alison Buff, which was uh, uh, Paul Buff's first wife, um, she had been dabbling with singing. I mean, it's just something where uh, Frank obviously heard her and decided to, to use her voice, but not you know exactly the way that you hear it as you, as you know
10: it's a, a lot of you know manipulation was done to her
6: voice to make make the vocal track sound the way that they do, but um and and the other thing is that the tracks were also you know double tracked you know one was at regular speed and one was. Uh, recorded at half speed and then certainly sped up. Yep. So it's kind of difficult, really, to sing along with something that was recorded at a different time. So here you have something in real time and something that's altered time, and it's kind of difficult to be able to to do that. So it was a very interesting experiment at the time to come up with something where you have different speeds, and this is this is not like a, you know an elephant and the chipmunks type of uh, recording here. <laughs> you know, this is something where it may you know initially you may think oh this is kind of like that but no it's not it's actually you know more topical it's more it's more towards something that whether they're trying to use it in a different context but um it's just that you know it's one of those things those ideas that frank had that he didn't maybe think all the way through and you know not all the pieces were there so i mean if you try to present it to someone which he did you won't you won't get too much interest in it because this it doesn't it doesn't hold together as a as a complete work and that's it's one of those things where you know you just experiment to see what happens and if it doesn't work you move on to something else so you know he learned from the experience and then he moved on to what we're all familiar with so what we've go. been enjoying you know all these all these years Probably within a few months, um, there'll, there'll be like a five CD uh, box set of sort of highlights from the set that we're licensing out to the British label, which is
10: Easy Action. Ah. Uh-huh. That'll that'll be um,
6: that'll be something that people could actually get on CD. All the Zappa tracks will be on that set, all of them. But you're
10: going to have to buy it along with the, the other stuff I want you to have. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, you know, that's the only way that I can do it. You know, um, yeah. I have to, I have to, you know, get what I want
6: out of it. And, you'll, you know, you'll get what you want out of it. But the thing is that you have to get other stuff, too. I mean, you're getting, you know, whatever hits Paul produced, that's that'll be on there. Those will be on there. But but the thing is that you're not just going to get the Zappa stuff on their own. Funny thing about it is, I don't know. I don't even know if those things hold up on their own. Um, you know, if you put them on two CDs, that's the thing
5: about it, which is kind of weird. Yeah.
6: Um, I I think that they work better in the context of of you know what I put together, which is sort of mixing them up with the other stuff. And I tried all different running orders of things. You know, I I have sort of a prototype three CD set. You know, two CDs of um, uh, Zappa stuff that was done at, at PAL, and the other disc is pretty much stuff that influenced him. You'll find things like Dog Patch Creeper on there, and some of those other other things that Frank's not on, but you can you can tell that Frank was influenced by by these things. You know, some of the the, the wop things that were there, and that. So it's basically. I'm giving I'm giving stuff in there like you know Tijuana for example
10: mm-hmm. that's on there, um, you know certainly Frank
6: heard that since uh, Run Run is the B side of that so um, you know things like that so those are the types of recordings that I want you to have in addition to the Zappa ones so you're not getting like you know tenth rate tracks you're getting stuff that you know I think are just as essential as the as the Zappa ones that's and great. I think they they go together much better when you do it that way rather than just, you know, Frank does this, Frank does that, Frank sneezed on this track and you know, here it is <laughs> you
10: know, type of thing. You know, that that kind of stuff.
6: And um so, you know, that's I'm just experimenting with different ideas right now as to what to do.
5: Are we going to see another update of cosmic debris someday?
6: Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I um I'm not quite sure when I'm going to hit it. I may I may start it later in the year, uh, maybe towards the end of the year. I mean, I certainly have to update it, uh, sort of in response to th- this particular collection as well as the wealth of uh, ZFT
10: releases which have come out, even up until last week. Yeah. Right? So um, I have to put all those in there as well. So I mean,
6: I have a lot of updating to do on that. Um. But I think the, I have to update my um, Yardbirds book first before I uh, get to the Zappa thing. Um, the, the, uh, this five CD set, is, it's a few months away because um, the label Easy Action is going to be putting out uh, a Yardbirds five CD set, which I've been working on for also about the same time, five years, and that's a big deal. And once that is out of the way, then, um, you know, we'll, we'll finalize this particular set and then get it out because uh, just there's just so much work that goes into all of this that it has to be done, you know, properly. But, you know, these CDs are packed to the limit. You know, they're, they're like 79 minutes plus each, you know, so there's going to be no shortage of, you know, material on these things. You're not going to be shortchanged by any, any means on on uh on any of this but um you know for people that want stuff on cd well that's that's one way they can actually get it and you know if i happen to come up with an idea that's even sort of a smaller version of it that works then i'll i'll do that you know i'll i'll mention that and then you know people can can get it but um it still requires a lot more thought though that's yeah, to keep reevaluating evaluating things and to try to come up with better ways of doing something.
3: And there you have it. Andrew and I would like to take this opportunity to thank Greg Russo for taking some serious time out of a very busy end-of-school-year schedule, and I'm not kidding, folks, it is very busy for him right now, to talk about this project with us and for allowing us to play a whole bunch of things from it, um, rather than... Uh, give you every little detail on everything you heard besides the um, stuff that we filled you in on already i would just recommend you go out and purchase yourself a copy of paul buff presents the pal and original sound studio archives the collection it is available at www.crossfirepublications.com uh, it is an expensive set, it comes to you on a flash drive, but it is very, 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 very worth your while, and an essential purchase for any serious Zappa historian. Right now we're going to take you back to PAL Studios, which by this time was renamed Studio Z for I was a teenage mud shop! <laughs>
15: we not only have the prettiest girls in the audience here at the Steve Allen Show, but also you'll have to admit some of the strangest musical instruments. And this gentleman plays perhaps the strangest of them all. He plays the bicycle, and his name is Frank Zappa. Thank you. You actually play a bicycle?
9: Yeah.
15: Are you in the musicians' union? Uh, No. Do you play any other musical instrument, anything more conventional, perhaps?
9: Guitar, vibes, bass, and
15: drums. Guitar, vibes, bass, drums, and bicycle. His <laughs> bicycle will travel from his bass to his drums to his guitar. Uh, how did you happen to uh, pick up your first bicycle? I, mean...
9: well, I was discussing this before with uh, some of the people backstage. I believe that a lot of the people have actually played bicycles from time to time. But when they're young, they take a piece of cardboard and a clothespin and attach it to the a rear wheel, and when it goes around, it makes that noise, and you're playing a bicycle then.
15: Oh, I see. You mean when they pretend they have a little motor and make it sound like a motorbike. Yes, we've all done that. Well, is that what you do? You make a motorbike noise? I see a couple of bikes over here. Perhaps we'd better go over and demonstrate and show them what you do. Frank Zappa, Z-A-P-P-A, huh? Well, here we are, friends. Stereo bikes. Uh, And you have a... What are these tools in your hands?
9: Uh, These pair of louis belson style drumsticks and a bass bow that i borrowed from your bass man in the back
15: louis belson style drumsticks does louis know what you're doing with them (laughs) i don't think he'd approve very (laughs) much how long have you been playing bike uh, frank (laughs) about two weeks (laughs) he probably was selling insurance or something he thought what's something real jerky that'll get me on the steve allen show (laughs) playing bicycle. What could be sillier than that? And he did it and here we are. That's probably how it happened. You've really only been playing two weeks? Yes. What do you do ordinarily besides this? I'm a composer. Ah. Uh, might we be familiar with any of your songs as yet?
9: Uh, well, you'll be fam- you will be familiar with some of my songs as of next week. But I did the score for The World's Greatest Sinner.
15: The... <laughs> Uh, and, and who might that be, uh, Tommy Manville, or who? Tell us about that.
9: That's the name of the film. It's the world's worst movie, and I did the music for it. The world's greatest sinner. Yes, it's a Tim Carey production, Frenzy Productions.
15: Frenzy Productions.
9: It's an it's an independent company.
15: They all are these days, the way things are going. But they uh, shot it in El Monte. <laughs> so they...
9: <laughs>
15: Listen, they shot my agent Mel Mondi, You know, so that could happen to anybody. Uh, who's in it? Uh, Tim
9: Carey and a cast of a thousand people that he found down on Main Street someplace.
15: <laughs> <laughs> the world's greatest sinner. Does Tim play the title role? Uh, yes. And you, you wrote the score for that. What instrumentation did you use? Three harmonicas and a bicycle or what?
9: Well, uh, we had a 55-piece orchestra, and we had a very unusual read section. We had... They couldn't uh, read. <laughs> we had contrabass clarinet, uh, two bassoons, no, four bassoons, uh, two oboes, English horn, four flutes and piccolo, uh, four trumpets, four horns, and four trombones and a tuba, and uh, I forget, there's a bunch of... And
15: a partridge of in a pear tree. Well, it sounds like <laughs> a very interesting... Uh, Inventory.
9: We, we, recorded it, we recorded it in the Chafee uh, College Little Theater in uh, Alta Loma, California.
15: Of course, it was, it was, was a runaway time production time. then, wasn't it? <laughs> right down the
9: line. For 12 hours we recorded it.
15: <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that. Now as for the uh, job of the moment... Uh, you want to play the New Departure Blues, or exactly what are you going to uh, lay on us here? I'll just let you show us what happens.
9: The first thing that I should do is demonstrate to you the different types of sounds that you can get from a bicycle, because it actually does make some very interesting uh, sounds, and, of course, that's what we're all interested in. There's new sounds, yes. yes. Like, It's one of the sounds that you can. <laughs>
15: yes. Oh, you have a microphone down there. I see. Well,
9: I'll, I'll need this microphone to pick up the next sound. It's a, you have to hold it right there. All right. All yeah, right. Here,
15: Sorry, you'll have to leave a message. He's not here right now. <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh, there's a hole in these things, isn't there? Yes. Did, did you, were you just whistling through there?
9: No. no what happened if you
15: tried? You, blow air. You, just you just blow air? And did it whistle? Can I blow air and it'll whistle?
9: Blow real
15: easy. Blow real easy. Oh, you easy. blow easy? Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> not Time. Yeah. <laughs> that concludes my arrangement of on a bicycle Don't for two. When you get home tonight, friends, try this on your own bicycle. <laughs> when you don't have a lot of wise acres around <laughs> What else? Well, the
9: next thing that I'd like to demonstrate is some of the other noises possible, and then I'd like to have uh, you participate with me uh, in a small improvisation for two bicycles, uh, pre-recorded tape, and uh, instrumental ensemble. Crazy. Okay, now here's what else you can do. You can pluck the spokes
15: like a harp. Sounds like the uh, Kyoto of Japan. <laughs> I can play uh, my nose. <laughs> really? Do that again, I mean that other thing.
9: The spokes in a rapid motion. This produces the uh, That's spoke similar, stick. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> similar, uh, it's similar to the effect of the uh, cardboard in the clothespin,
15: like the uh, steel drums of Jamaica and uh, Trinidad, yeah. Trinidad.
9: You can also bang on the frame, and if you're lucky enough to have a bicycle that has a squeaking seat, you can squeak the seat. up there.
15: <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, Exploding handlebar, you can explode the handlebar. Um, that premise is granted, there's no limit to what you can do. Well, would you uh, help me with this, please? I'll be glad to accompany you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Looks rather uncomfortable to sit on, I must say.
9: <laughs> well, there's a different technique for the upside down bicycle. Oh. First thing you do is you put the kickstand down. Oh, and I'm you glad can, to hear that. You can turn the wheels around, you know, and then
15: Yeah. And then you can put the brakes on. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Where it says four bar rest, you just give it a little of that. <laughs>
9: and I'll uh, have you uh, put the bow on here. So you can go like that. you take this, please?
15: And That's you... like fingernails on the blackboard. Is what <laughs>
9: <laughs> <laughs> now, uh,
15: this, this may be a little bit new to you. But I think that uh, it doesn't come up in the ordinary conversation.
10: (laughs)
9: Well, I should suggest that you alternate between bowing and uh, plucking.
15: And Aerojet. Those are two airplanes here in the. You
9: should bow it and pluck it, and uh, if you can scratch across the uh, bow it and
15: pluck
3: it the basket.
9: Now, the whole idea that we're going to uh, do here in this improvised uh, concerto for two bicycles, uh, a pre-recorded tape, and the musicians in the back is that you're supposed to express yourself freely without any kind of... uh, You have to let your front down. and uh, You have to to, uh, just feel your way through it because you're completely released. You're a composer yourself, and you're know that the standard method of notation is very difficult, you know. And I ignore
15: it. Yes. <laughs> well, this will help. Now, uh, if, uh... You write the music on a road map for this thing. Now, that's how Route 66 was written. You think I'm kidding? Uh, I am kidding, but not too successfully. And, go ahead.
9: I got to, to tell the man in the control booth who is ready to run the tape if we just give me a quick blast of the tape so we can get started. <laughs> All right. Now, the tape is pre-recorded electric noises that uh, I stuck together. Uh, I gave my wife a clarinet and told her to play it, and uh, she doesn't play a clarinet. (laughs) I
15: doesn't even have a wife. How do you like that?
9: And then I did some electric things to it. And it's very interesting. You'll hear a woman singing in there someplace, and I I record that off the radio and (laughs) stuck it in. But now, the, the way we work this is, when the man in the control booth feels moved to add his electronic part to our work here... He will throw a little switch, which just lets some of this noise through. And then I request of the, the uh, musicians that if they feel so moved, make any noise possible on your instrument. No, uh, Try and refrain from musical tones. And In fact... Uh, <laughs>
10: they won't have any trouble
9: with that order. <laughs> if it would be possible for you The regular to... way, fellas. I'm sorry. If it would be possible for you to put some sort of objects on the strings of the piano. You'll get... You know, you know, That's good.
15: I prefer you to play it that way. (laughs) All season long, Don.
9: All right. Now we'll start.
15: Are we on? The snow and everywhere that Mar- no, this is part of it. He told me to re- recite a poem while this was going. <laughs> Boys stood on the burning deck. Ruth rode on my cycle car on a seat in back of me. I took a bump at ninety-five and rode on ruthlessly. <laughs> 32 bars. We're playing like we went to 32 bars tonight, you know? Well, Mr. Zappa. I must say that I'm always in favor of enlarging the horizons, at least in peering anxiously beyond the horizons of any field of human endeavor or interest. And therefore, I uh, congratulate you on your uh, farsightedness <laughs> And as for your music, don't ever do it around here again. Is it? No, seriously, it was a very amusing and entertaining and stimulating experiment. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Yes, I would.
9: Next week, a record is being released called "How's Your Bird?" And really? Yes, I brought a dub of it over here. I don't think you've heard it yet, and it's uh,
15: go and buy it. It's wonderful. Crazy. It's got
9: everything but a bicycle in it.
15: All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Zappa. Thank you. You know, that music sounds a little bit like the music that a very gifted... thought I sat on the pie there for a minute. <laughs> Ooh, that was a close one, folks. You could have had me that time. I wasn't looking for you. You did. No, uh, the... Uh, Alwin Nikolai is his name, a very gifted choreographer. I'll go to that mic. Very gifted choreographer. Uh, we used to use him on the show when we were on Sunday evenings. And uh, he... Does his own music I guess music is the best word They can find for it And it sounds very much like that Uh, He plays uh, tin cans backwards And records them At strange tape speeds And then to this strange Conglomeration of sounds He um, creates dances Choreography And uh, he's uh, really a genius uh, In his particular field I guess we must have to let somebody around the country talk right now. Uh, another Sammy Fain song will be performed for you in just a moment. Great song, "Secret Love," will be sung by Jenny Smith, and then after that we'll be getting Sammy out, and we have a few other surprises. I guess even to me. Hurry right back. <laughs>
4: This is the idiot bastard back with the news. Uh, But before I do that, I'd like to make a couple of announcements. Firstly, a sincere apologies to Mick Eakers, whose name I mispronounced in the last episode. And secondly, I set a competition 10 questions related to the 88 tour. We had a winner. Mr. Robert Ross, he's won himself a couple of CDs, 21 Burnt Rainy Sandwiches, and Steve I Presents Western Vacation. There was a trick question amongst there, that was...
3: Question number five, please. Before 1988, what was the last tour on which Bruce Fowler played with Frank?
4: To which the correct answer was 1984. Bruce was a special guest on the 22nd of July in LA. <laughs> so, congratulations to Robert, and without further ado-do... Is your news? And hopefully, Knuckles next door won't start fingering his organ and interrupt us this time. Okay, Zappa loving guitarist J21 from Barcelona has his Beyond the Holographic Fail album coming out on CD from Floating World Records in June. This album features the first collaboration between Scott Tunis and Ed Mann since 1988, as well as contributions from Reeves Gabriels, Jeff Tyson, Robert Martin, Don Preston, Marco Miniman, Mike Garson, and <clears throat> some other guy.
2: Oh, nana, what's the name?
4: Um, Jay's first album Yellow Mind Blue Mind also featured Ed and that's also coming out on the same label Zappa Plays Zappa have announced a big bunch of US and Canadian dates from July to September Flo and Eddie are special guests for one night only at the Bearsville Theatre in New York on the 28th of July The 10th of August to the 24th of September dates are all in support of Return to Forever 4 with the exception of uh, a blues festival where they open for the Flaming Lips Suddenly available is Napoleon Murphy Brock's This Is What Frank Zappa Heard, an album Nappy recorded with Communication Plus at the Red Noodle Club in Waikiki in 1973. Uh, I got it the other day, it's pretty damn good actually, not bad, well worth checking out. The Magic Band, that is John French, Denny Wally and Mark Boston, plus a couple of guys from Drumbo's band, will play All Tomorrow's Parties Festival at Butlin's Minehead early December. A couple more UK dates should be announced shortly. I saw Denny with the Muffin Men at the Cavern recently. They were pretty gear, I tell thee. Mike Keneally has been writing and recording music with Terry Bozio, as well as working on Jamie Kime's debut album. Mike's imminent live CD and DVD now has a title, Baking at the Potato, and I've also got the Brian Bella album, which is uh, the first set from that same show that Mike's releasing. Get them both um i don't know if people have been following the vi tunes these download only tracks that steve vi has been releasing but he's just released another one called the bodhi tree Uh, features steve experiment with his even tired h300 harmonizer some 20 odd years ago it's a little over nine minutes and it's nice i like it a lot chad wackerman is going to travel outside of the us he's currently on tour in the us with james taylor Uh, also walt fowler is in that band but chad doesn't know whether or not james will be bringing the home section over to the uk that's in july hopefully he will pauline butcher has written her memoir of what happened while she worked for frank she was his secretary between 1968 and 1972 this will be published by plexus in the uk in october and titled freak out my life with frank zappa and finally ezra mohawk the real uncle meat is the latest addition to the lineup for this year's zappanali Right, that's the news. Now, as we're looking at the early years of Young Frankie, I thought it might be apt to play a little tribute to that period that Mike Leelee performed at Zapanali in 2003. He played a wondrous set featuring solo material together with some not so obvious FZ songs. He was joined by Mr. Ike Willis. So, pin back your leggles and cop some of this.
16: a place
13: where me and a couple of friends began practicing all the time
15: we might go
2: on
15: TV. This
1: mistake would have been later on they got a chance to play
13: All we ever really knew all we ever really knew All we ever really knew Yeah it
8: was crazy To be doing any other way, yeah, it was crazy no, no, no. to be doing it any, any other way. way, yeah, it was crazy no, no, no. to be doing it any no, no, no. other way, yeah, it was
1: crazy, crazy. crazy.
9: your mind drift back across the misty pages of rock and roll history way way back before there was even blood sweat and tears before there was kiss and mandrill showing up show up about to get the groove now
1: yeah, 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 many yeah,
9: years yeah. before mandrill in a town called Cucamonga, California.
1: Yes, it was.
9: At a place called 8040 Archibald Avenue, Cucamonga, California, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it was. (laughs) There was a little recording studio that belonged to a guy named Paul Buff. Now, Paul Buff (laughs) used to be in the Marines. He was short, but he was in the Marines. Freaks, freaks, freaks. And while he was in there, Besides learning how to kill people, they showed him how to work a soldering iron. And what do you think that devastating little motherfucker did? As soon as he got out of the Marine Corps, he got a job at Convair. And he hated every minute of it, ladies and gentlemen. He didn't really like working at Convair, even though they were going to change the name up at the General Dynamics later. He got out of there while the getting was good. And he decided that he wanted to get into the rock and roll industry. Now, we're not going to hold back any of the grim details of the emergence of this group, you know, so if you're in a hurry to boogie or something, you better go down the street because I'm going to tell you the story tonight. Okay. Now, you have to imagine Paul Buff. He's about like this. And uh, he's wearing red socks, black peggers, white shoes, and a straw hat. And he thought it was cool and he was right because that's the way everybody looked in Cucamonga in those days so paul decided that with his knowledge and the skill that he had gained in the service our country through the good through the good training that he got in the united states marine corps he was going to take his soldering iron skills and single-handedly construct on Archibald Avenue in Cucamonga, right next to the intersection of Route 66, Foothill Boulevard, not far from the Cucamonga Malt Chop Hardware Store, Bank of America, and a little Irish bar with sawdust on the floor, Paul Buff was going to open up a recording studio so he could record surf music. That's how far out he was. And even to this day, he remains far out. He's so far out, he's in Memphis. However, Paul Buff constructed out of an old bureau, an old chest of drawers, this old brown thing with curved sides made out of cheap veneer. He took the drawers out, he stuck in some wires and tubes, and he put some knobs on the top of it. And you have to imagine, this is the same kind of a little dresser that a teenage girl would have in a room with some sleazy doilies on it, you know, and lipstick and stuff. It's one of those... Take the mirror away. Now, just imagine, here's this guy, straw hat, red socks, black peggers, and a chest of drawers with knobs in it, and that was his recording console. Takes ingenuity. But he didn't stop there because he needed a tape recorder, so he built one. He made the world's first five-track recording machine. This is all true. He took a machine called a Presto, which is something they used to use in low-budget radio stations. Uh, A machine that normally handled quarter-inch tape, and he put some more stuff on it so it would handle half-inch tape. And then he took some Norelco quarter-track heads, and he made himself his own five-track head stack. It was like that and that long. They weren't straight up and down. Track one was here, two was there, three was there, four was there, and five was there, which meant... That once you recorded the tape on that machine, it couldn't be playback any place else in the world. Let's hear it for him. Yeah. You also have to remember that at this time, now this is like 10 or 12 years ago when he did this, the the height of studio technique any place in Hollywood, California, was three track. And they were talking about going to four track. That was really going to be a big move for them. But Paul had made this little five-track machine out there, so here's what he did with it. He taught himself how to play the alto saxophone, the bass, the guitar, the drums, the piano, and then he taught himself how to sing. And he locked himself in this studio night after night, and he would overdub and make these surf songs and love songs and other kinds of songs that he thought were imminently commercial, and he would prepare these things. Well, he went broke. And one day... I bought this studio from him. I got such a deal. For $1,000, I got the chest of drawers with the knobs. I got the five-track machine. I got his collection of microphones. There must have been at least six of them in the studio. Some of them were even good enough to use for a PA system in a bar. I got a set of drums, two pianos, and some bamboo curtains. And so I locked myself up in the studio for a number of months. After a while, after learning how to operate his grotesque equipment, managed to put together, after a little problem with the law in Cucamonga, California, you understand, put together a rock and roll ensemble called the Mothers of Invention. Well, it was called, actually, it was called just the Mothers then. It was spelled M U T H E R S, which was short for Mother.
4: Yes, there's some more news to tell you about. The Zappa Family Trust, in conjunction with Steve Jobs, released a download-only track around Mother's Day this year, recorded around Mother's Day 1974. It features a splendid live recording of Penguin in Bondage, followed by the little-known story of the Mothers of Invention. You just heard an extract, and you really need to buy it. Now. It's an MPEG-4. So what? Frank would never have allowed it? Bollocks. How many of you remember the guitar world, according to Frank Zappa? Did that hurt your ears? Naf off, you pigeon chested laboratory creepers.
3: Now, while we're out here visiting this cruddy little town in the desert, figured we'd play you uh, a couple of uh, pieces that Frank wrote for a film called Run Home Slow, uh, which was produced by uh, Frank's friend Tim Sullivan, it starred Mercedes McCambridge. Uh, it's a very low budget and um, very slow moving western film. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's worth a look, and it certainly has a, a fair amount of uh, otherwise unavailable uh, Frank Zappa cues inserted into the soundtrack. The music for the film was recorded with a small pickup orchestra in 1963 at Art LeBeau's Original Sound Studios in Hollywood. Paul Buff engineered those tracks. What you're going to hear now is a, uh, a kind of medley of um, bits of music recorded for both the film and performed subsequently by the Mothers of Invention. Here you are, some music from Run Home Slow on the Zappacast. And while we're at it, let's throw this little sucker in here. This one uh, was recorded in November of 1961 for Carrie's film, The World's Greatest Sinner. This is Baby Ray and the Ferns, uh, an early collaboration featuring uh, Ray Collins on vocals, Frank Zappa on uh, lead guitar, rhythm guitar, and backing vocals, and Paul Buff on bass, drums, and saxophone. Here you are, The World's Greatest center. for Tales of Unnecessary Terror. It's May 19th, 1963. You're in Brentwood. What are you doing in Brentwood? You're at the Little Theater at Mount St. Mary's College in Brentwood. There's a funny-looking guy on the stage standing in front of a very ragtag, low-budget-looking orchestra. He's about to lay some things on your mind that you can hardly comprehend. What are you doing in Brentwood? Uh,
9: This is what the wind conductor is reading from. These pages spread around here are fragments that the uh, musicians have copied onto their parts. He is going to give them signals telling them which of these fragments to play. And these schematics uh, show him in which order they are to be played this time. The piece is flexible, you can play it any way you want. We can impose a certain amount of order on it for this performance only. The blue sections on his schematic tell him that he is to be silent for a certain length of time. The red areas tell him that he is to Allow his players to improvise. The brass conductor has a similar chart which he goes by, and I go by the same thing for the strings. I'm conducting the tape recorder and the strings and the piano, and Barry is conducting the woodwinds and Richard Kieck. <laughs> Pete is conducting the the uh, brass. <laughs> so, right
16: on, right on.
10: Thank you.
9: to devise new and different sounds on their instruments. You see, part of the, a lot of the piece was improvised, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I them uh, to find different kinds of sounds that they could make on their instruments, and some of them really came up with some nice uh, ideas. The, the signals that we were giving, I'll explain to you very simply. This means free improvisation, and the finger signals told the performers which of the fragments they were to uh, play at any given moment. And uh, anything else that we were doing while we were gyrating around here is all meant to convey some kind of meaning. Maybe they could just halfway guess what we meant it would, something would to make a, a different kind of design.
3: We'd like to close out episode three with a very special treat for those of you who haven't heard it. In 2010, Uh, during the Zappathon on WUSB in Stony Brook, Long Island. Nigel Lennon and John Tobacco interviewed Lorraine Belcher Chamberlain, who is probably best known as the buxom redheaded companion that Frank was busted alongside during the uh, infamous pornography raid on Studio Z in 1965. Lorraine gave a very rare interview to John and Nige and gave a very good insight into, um, the young Frank Zappa and her continued relationship with him, uh, following the, uh, Cucamanga era. And this seems like a good opportunity to let you guys know that a ebook version of Nige's memoir, Being Frank, My Time with Frank Zappa, uh, is going to be coming your way shortly, um, through Nike's website, and we're going to have details on that, hopefully, by the next Zappacast. Here it is, with many thanks to John Tobacco and Nigel. Lennon, Lorraine Belcher-Chamberlain.
16: Well, this is John Tobacco, and I'm here
18: with Nigelan, and this is sort of like a special non-objective reality show in a way, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, it is. And on the phone with us right now, a very special guest, we have... Lorraine Chamberlain, who had, as far as I can tell, I mean, Frank Zappa, as probably most people know, Frank Zappa had a very active social life. (laughs) Yes. One constant throughout. From the beginning, um, you met Frank in what year again?
19: It was 1964, four, five, just uh, nice turning 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met him in the, the this uh, Carolina Pines. Uh, it uh, was I, about 4 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and um, I was sitting at the counter with Lauren Irel, who later became Susie Cream Cheese. I, I don't even know how I met this girl, but we were linked up, you know, and it was up all night in this coffee shop. It was a real hangout in those days Mm -hmm. on Sunset and La Brea. Mm -hmm. And so we were in there and she was sitting at the counter talking to somebody she knew. And I was getting a little bored, so I'm twirling on my little diner stool. (sighs) And I looked right around, over halfway across the room is the big kind of plush rolled and pleat booth. Mm -hmm. And sitting in that was Frank in a little striped t-shirt guy in an iridescent green suit with iridescent green Bobby Rydell hair, and uh, the other guy turned out to be Captain Beefheart.
18: (laughs) He was the weirdest of the bunch. (laughs) Yeah.
19: I looked right at Frank, Mm -hmm. and he, you know, with his very intense gaze, he -hmm. looked right at me and then crooked his finger at me, just beckoning me over, Mm -hmm. and I just sort of Around and gave him my back.
18: Nobody gives Frank Zappa their back.
19: <laughs> May I, my, you know, but he doesn't just crook their finger at me.
18: Yeah, right, exactly.
19: So uh, after a few minutes, you know, I was getting a little bored, so I thought I'd just take a peek at him again. And he kind of tilted his head to the side and grinned at me and then waved at me again to come over.
10: Mm-hmm. And I
19: thought, oh, what the hell? And I got up, and as I was strolling across the restaurant, He was very smart. He got up and took a chair from another booth and put it on the outside of his booth Mm
18: -hmm. so that
19: I wouldn't get squeezed in with these
18: other characters. Yeah.
19: And uh, when I sat down, Frank said, pleasure looking at you. (laughs) And as I sat down, I said, likewise. (laughs) And so we sat there. I thought he was fantastically attractive. Uh Mm Uh-huh. And, you know, so ridiculous looking. (laughs) (laughs) Humor and grooming. I don't know what it is, but I... uh He just had beautiful eyes Mm -hmm. and such an odd manner. We sat there talking and laughing and carrying on for, you know, at least an hour before Lauren noticed I was gone. And so I went over and got her, and she came and joined us. Mm -hmm. We ended up getting in that orange station wagon Frank had. Chevy? And we drove, I can't believe this. Uh, There weren't as many weirdos, or at least we didn't know there were as many weirdos in those days. But Lauren and I got in the car with these two characters and drove to Cucamonga, his studio. It was yeah, really mm-hmm. fantastic because the whole way, Frank and I were in the front seat and Lauren and, and Beefheart were in the back playing his harmonica and doing oh, yeah,
18: uh, Howl yeah. and Wolf. Uh-huh, yeah.
19: And stuff, and it was just yeah. fantastic. And Frank, meanwhile, was very serious talking to me about how he thought that music could control people's minds and how influential music could actually be rather than just top 40, you know, two-and-a-half-minute little ditties. who could really cause a revolution. You know, in those days, that might have been thought of as crackpot. You know, it's turned out to be pretty true.
18: <laughs> oh, definitely. It was a very avant-garde notion, but, but one I think most people would tend to agree... Uh, Well, of course, Frank himself did a lot of uh, developing of that sort of concept with his own work. So obviously that was, I guess, an early, when you say, John, kind of an early manifestation of. Absolutely. Did Frank ever at that early, early stage, I mean, you got to know him better as time went on, of course. But did he talk at all about his project object or conceptual continuity or anything that gave you the idea that he had a large canvas he was sort of working with so to speak oh
19: yes because it would include film he was like a renaissance man really and he wasn't just some guy playing a guitar in a band he had much higher goals in mind he'd done a score for a mercedes mccambridge movie the
18: mm-hmm. western that was run home slow and uh, mm-hmm.
19: you know he had enormous uh, library of recorded material And uh, that was big reel-to-reel jobs. And, I mean, he was projecting film on the wall in Studio Z Mm -hmm. that was way before there were light shows. Mm -hmm. It was all that kind of really wild imagery on the walls playing his his music. And, you know, he was arranging and playing all the instruments on some of
10: Mm -hmm. the music we were
19: listening to. He played all the instruments. You walked in the door, and off to the left were offices. It was a huge dark room mm-hmm. with a couch and a desk and stuff, and he, which he barely ever entered. And to the right was the control room with a big window looking out into the recording area. Mm-hmm. When you w- opened these big double doors into the recording area, off to the right was a, a big piano. And off to the left were these various and sundry couches that looks like he might have found them on the street mm-hmm. from... Off to the right, as you passed the piano, then there was a long area there, which is where he projected films. And mm-hmm. the wall, and past the couches and everything, off to the left was a a wall with a a, a regular window in it that you could raise and lower, like a, a kitchen or bedroom window. Mm-hmm. Right. And in there was his bedroom, and in the bedroom was you know a big aquarium, glass aquarium filled with severed dolls' heads <laughs> and arms, like various decorative.
18: Yeah, little touches. <laughs> Those little touches that make it homey. Box. Yeah. The
19: big jukebox. Mm-hmm. Actually, it wasn't the jukebox. It was the door to the bathroom. <laughs> and, um, That's interesting. So it, you know, there were chords and stuff all over the place, and mm-hmm. musical instruments.
18: Okay, well, let's 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 move up to the, um, you know, sort of the the big moment there in Cucamonga at Studio Z. Tell uh, us yes. About the bust. Tell us how that bust came about, and
19: really broke. And a girlfriend of mine from reform school was there, staying with us with her little one-year-old child, Mm -hmm. and uh, she was living in the office, and we only had one good outfit between the two of us, Theo and I. (laughs) Oh, dear. It was a little sort of Chanel suit-looking thing that my mother had given me, Mm -hmm. and so one day she would get on the bus and go into L.A. and apply for jobs at, you know, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith or something,
10: Mm -hmm. (laughs)
19: wearing that little suit, and then Uh the next day I would go in there looking for a job wearing it. And so it was my day to be gone looking for a job. And, I mean, we were really broke, right? If something had broken down some piece of equipment so he couldn't even record other people and so while i was gone this guy had come by pretending to be a used car dealer and they were going to have a a bachelor party for someone that was getting married and originally he wanted a film a little pornographic film Mm -hmm. but frank said that he didn't have the materials for that and but he could make a tape Mm -hmm. and so they said okay and they'd be back the next day to get it Mm -hmm. so when i walked in the door in my little prim suit Frank had wheeled the bed out from the bedroom into the middle of the recording area, put up microphones and stuff, and he taught Theo how to run the controls, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is what we're going to do. You know, you're underage, and I've picked you up in a bar or something.
18: And mm-hmm. He laid out a scenario. Yeah, the little
19: scenario was mm-hmm. that we've, we've come to a motel now. And that was all I knew.
18: Uh-huh. We were fully closed. Uh-huh. And right, because a lot of people have always wanted to know: Did anything really go on, or was it just strictly oh, no. acting?
19: All the lights were on. Theo would play this background music, mm-hmm. you know. And Frank, the first thing he said to me was, "Well, little honey, uh, have you graduated from high school yet?" And I looked at him and said, you know, "I graduate in June, but I'm going to go to summer school." <laughs> and he didn't know what I was going to say, and he says, well, "What are you going to study?" And I said, cosmetology, <laughs> and then we'd laugh, you know.
18: Yeah, right.
19: It took about forty-five minutes to an hour to record because then we'd have Theo would say, "Okay, get down to business." Well, we'd start moaning and groaning and carrying on,
18: but we were fully clothed. <laughs> that must have been really hard to do. It must have—you must have been cracking up every like other you know,
19: laughing line. the whole time. Yeah, sure. So sure. Frank stayed up half the night editing what was at least an hour, mm-hmm. or an hour and a half maybe, of tape, mm-hmm. great comedy tape, editing it into this nasty little heavy breathing and mm-hmm. moaning and carrying on mm-hmm. uh, little tape was lasted about five minutes. Uh-huh. So in the morning, uh, there was a knock at the door, and this guy goes in the control room with Frank, and Theo brought her baby into the bedroom, and we're, mm-hmm. we put the bed back in the bedroom. And we're peeking out that window across the studio to the window in the control room, looking at this guy in this cheesy, loud, plaid jacket, Mm -hmm. you know, with back hair, laughing about what an obvious used car dealer he looked like, you know. (laughs) God. Suddenly the doors burst open, and it sounds like a herd of elephants coming across the room, and there was Frank leading them and saying, Pete, Theo, we're under arrest. And I uh, this I had nothing on, you know, and I grabbed the sheet pulled it up over me and suddenly there's eleven men at the end of the bed and Detective Willis steps forward and says, Identify yourselves, please And Theo, you know, grabs her baby and says, you know I'm I'm Theo. Uh And they took her out, and he Mm -hmm. said, and your name. And I said, I'll identify myself after you get out of here so I can get dressed. And so they all backed up and herded themselves out into the recording area. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I just got up and grabbed my clothes and scampered through the jukebox into the bathroom. (laughs) Wow. And then they're washing my face and brushing my teeth and putting on my makeup. And pretty soon I can hear them running all over the place trying to figure out where I've gone. And then I stepped out from the jukebox and, of course, by then Willis was out of his mind. He'd put Frank in the control room,
10: mm-hmm. and
19: sat me down in the recording area to ask me questions. And right away he said, "Now tell me if you wouldn't ever indulged in oral copulation with Mr. Sample." <laughs> and I laughed and I said, "In the first place, I know that's a felony in the state of California. But are you asking because it pertains to this little charade, or for your own perverse curiosity?" <laughs> I just kept asking him questions, Mm To his questions. Mm -hmm. I asked him, I said, you know, vice squad, you're on the vice squad. Does this involve entrapping homosexuals in public toilets? Does your (laughs) wife know that's how you spend your day? Jeez. So he really hated me.
18: I'll bet, yeah. Well, but, you know, he's asking for it, too. Yeah. Why didn't he get a real job, you know, a decent job? But anyway, yeah. I mean,
19: this is not to say that I was just... Cocky. I was very frightened. No, oh, yeah. I wasn't yeah. about to let him see that.
18: See that, right. Mm-hmm. So
19: then I asked him uh, if I could talk to Frank alone for a minute. Mm. So they let me go in the control room and left us alone for a minute. And Frank, knowing I had been in reform school, was just devastated. He was so worried, you know, and he was apologizing, saying, I am so sorry. And then I did that little finger bursting, you know, mm. with our fingers going, Oh, what the hell? And we started laughing. <laughs> he had his arms around me. And then the photographer kicked the door open. That's where that photograph came from. It yeah, looked like seen, we posed for it.
18: I've seen that picture. On the page
19: yeah. of the newspaper, and it said, age, to and... a go-go to jail. Right. You know? Right. Well, then right. the band showed up to rehearse. Oh, boy. Um, I'll never forget Motorhead. They had, him, they had the, them all stand in a line and roll up their sleeves and show their arms. To
18: make sure they didn't have track marks. That like was in his... those
19: days. Excuse me. Yeah. And yeah. I'll never forget Motorhead looking over at me saying, Pete... They're looking for tracks. <laughs> oh, he was so excited because you know he didn't do drugs, or, Yeah. and so he thought that was really exotic. <laughs> but uh, they let all the boys go, and then they they left Theo there.
18: What was here's a question, Lorraine? What was the population of Cucamonga at that point? It was a, a few hundred people, right? Yeah, it was really a it little. Was a real one horse town, hardly
19: yeah. even a town.
18: Yeah, okay. And there
19: was a Baptist church across the street in a little storefront. Mm-hmm. Really <laughs> funny. Um, yeah. Theo and I went over. I wanted to listen to the music, but they all turned on us. You mm-hmm. know, it was mm-hmm. like they were going to drag us up to the front to be saved. Uh huh. So we, we ran out of there.
18: Yeah, I remember Frank saying it was very really difficult to deal with the small-mindedness there. Oh, yeah. And obviously that, you know, played a huge role in, you know, the the entrapment of this bus. Yeah,
19: they you were know. doing a vice sweep. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no, they weren't really targeting us. They were targeting mm-hmm. everyone along that whole little area.
10: Mm-hmm.
19: And uh, they, they hit pay dirt when they... Had us make that little tape, yeah. and when they handed the guy handed Frank a hundred dollar bill mm-hmm. and, and said, "Is that really your girlfriend and you having sex on this tape?" and Frank said, "Oh, well, of course." You know? <laughs> then Detective yeah. Willis actually spoke into his wristwatch. It was hilarious, <laughs> and said, "Okay, men, identify yourselves." And then they burst through the doors. You know. Well. Wow. Very comical, really.
18: Yeah, yeah, it is absurd, so... You
19: know, Frank, year, uh, later when Freakout came out, on the third side, I think it was, you know, it was just a duplication of the tape we made of mm-hmm. the moaning and groaning, and so he mailed an autographed copy of that disc to Detective Willis and told him what cut to listen to. <laughs>
3: that's our show thank you very much for listening the ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker Andrew Greenaway and Mick Eakers be sure to check out Andrew's website at www.idiotbastard.com for all the latest Zappa news and also to purchase Andrew's book Zappa the Hardway the definitive account of the 1988 Frank Zappa Broadway the Hardway tour for those of you interested in obtaining my Zappa books my website is located at www.spbpublishing.webs.com and if you order the books directly from me, I'll sign them for you. My books are also available from www.gnsmusic.com, purveyors of the finest Zappa merchandise anywhere, as well as www.amazon.com and many other right-thinking booksellers. And you should also check out Mick Eager's excellent site on Frank's Gear at www.zappasgear.com. If you wish to contact us, drop us a line at moi 1969 that's 1969 at snet.net on behalf of Andrew Greenaway and Mick Eakers this is Scott Parker saying thank you again for listening and until next time good night boys and girls thanks a lot
1: good night